This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, before I get started, I wanted to thank Carta and I want to thank the organizers for inviting me to um, what so far has been a really interesting uh, symposium. Um, and as uh, Mark said, I'm going to talk about the evolution of the human skull, and it's going to kind of follow up a little bit on some of the, the, the materials that were presented in the, in the first two talks. And so when we look at the, uh, the human skull, the, the skull of today's humans, we can see that it's pretty different from that of the Neanderthal that you see um, on the slide. You can see that the, today's uh, human skull has a kind of a smaller face that's kind of tucked underneath the brain case. And then we have a kind of a cranial uh, vault um, that is kind of much shorter and sort of taller than the elongated one that you see for the Neanderthal. And so there's these differences um, that have been talked about in the first two talks. And if I put up uh, another member of uh, other member of our own genus, the genus Homo, other than a Neanderthal, you'd see that there are also these differences. Um, some of them are the same as the ones you see with the Neanderthals, and some of them are different. Uh, so there's some kind of unique sort of features of the Neanderthals. But in any case, um, the skull of uh, present-day humans is uh, quite distinctive. It looks very different from what we see um, in earlier uh, members of the genus Homo. So um, as you heard about in the first two talks, uh, we can use this distinctiveness as kind of a way to trace the emergence of our own lineage and the migrations of uh, members of our lineage uh, throughout the planet. And so uh, by looking at uh, the kind of anatomy, we can locate the emergence of uh, our lineage to Africa. Uh, we can also uh, couple this with genetic evidence, which, uh, which locates the origin of our lineage in Africa. And then genetic evidence coupled with uh, evidence from the anatomy can allow us to kind of trace the movement of our lineage outside of Africa and, and around the planet. And so this, uh, this uh, fossil from Herto in Ethiopia is kind of a good example of this, right? We can use these features as kind of a marker to trace the origins, to trace the migrations of our lineage throughout the planet. So this is, of course, uh, very fascinating, very interesting, um, and we want to sort of understand um, how our lineage emerged and how it moved around the planet. But there are other kind of questions that we can ask um, looking at this anatomy. So for example, we could ask questions like, why don't our skulls look like those of other members of the genus Homo? Why do today's humans have such distinctive uh, anatomy of the skull? And we can ask questions about how rapidly did our distinctive anatomy um, appear, how rapidly did it appear, um, and uh, did it come in sort of all at once, or did it, was, did it come in over a longer period of time? And so these are kind of the questions that I would like to focus on today. Uh, focusing on these uh, questions, not so much using this anatomy as a marker for tracing the emergence of our lineage and the migrations of us around the planet, but actually trying to understand why we look the way we do um, and how rapidly um, this came about. And so in particular, my goal is to try to dispel what I think are two sort of misconceptions about the evolution of the human skull. So this first one is that um, misconception number one is that all differences between the skulls of today's humans and Neanderthals or all differences between the skulls of today's humans and other members of the genus Homo, so not, not the Neanderthals, are adaptive. 
And so adaptive is a term that's used by evolutionary biologists. But what I mean by this in this context is that there were some sort of functional differences between, say, our skull and the skull of the Neanderthals. So they functioned in a kind of a different way. And so these differences um, indicate something about differences in function between us and these other members of the genus Homo. So over the years, there have been a number of kind of uh, adaptive sort of explanations for these features. Um, and so on the one hand, there are these adaptive explanations for the Neanderthals. So one sort of common one is thinking about Neanderthals' uh, skull anatomy as somehow related to the kind of cold environments that they were living in and evolving in. Um, another explanation has to do with the fact that uh, there's evidence that maybe they were using their, their jaws kind of as a third hand, um, and so that there was uh, kind of this mechanical loading that was associated with that, and that might have had some kind of consequences on just the overall anatomy of the skull. On the other hand, there are kind of adaptive explanations for sort of thinking about, well, why do we actually look different? So why do today's humans look so distinctive? And probably the most fascinating and, and maybe kind of interesting and exciting one is to sort of think about that it may have something to do with um, speech. Um, because, of course, speech and language are so important about what uh, characteristics about what makes us human. And so there could be something about our skull that has to do with the ability to produce the sounds that allow us to um, create language. But there's an alternative. Um, there's another kind of possibility that I think we should sort of seriously consider. And so there's this evolutionary process that we call genetic drift. Um, and genetic drift is this process where there are these chance changes that happen in populations just because any population is finite in size. And so if you think about different regions of the genome, so different genetic loci, and there's going to be different alleles at those different uh, loci. Um, and those alleles are going to be in certain frequencies in kind of any kind of human population. But by this uh, process of genetic drift, you can have shifts in the frequencies of those alleles, these kind of chance changes. And just the fact that the population is finite in size means just because of this kind of sampling process that happens as uh, parents uh, give rise to offspring and offspring give rise to further offspring, you have this process of genetic drift acting. And so if some of these alleles, some of these loci, underlie the anatomical differences that we see in the human skull, then you're also going to get these, these changes that you see um, in the skeletal anatomy as well. And so you can imagine kind of a situation where you had some sort of an ancestral population to Neanderthals, an ancestral population uh, to Neanderthals and, and kind of us, um, and, but then they diverged from each other over a period of hundreds of thousands of years, and so there would have been lots of time for this process of genetic drift to act and produce at least some of the differences that we see in today's skulls. And so my colleagues and I have tried to address this idea, the idea that maybe a lot of these differences could actually be non-functional. They could actually be due to this process of genetic drift. And we try to address it over a kind of a number of different ways, a number of different directions. But I want to present today is kind of a new kind of approach that we've taken um, and some new results on this. So in order to kind of address this, we have to have some way of kind of quantifying the anatomy. And you've seen this already in the first two presentations. So we use these kind of methods of geometric morphometrics where we take these kind of anatomical locations or landmarks or, or semi-landmarks and kind of use them to characterize the kind of size and shape of the, of the skulls of, of, of today's humans, but also Neanderthals, to really uh, kind of document the variation that we see. 
And then we take this data and we, um, we, well, we um, analyze it um, in a particular way. And um, the approach we've taken is we use kind of models from quantitative evolutionary theory to kind of make predictions about what we would expect if the divergence uh, was entirely due to this process of genetic drift. And then we compare that with the observed data and see if it looks like it's consistent or not. And so here is, uh, come some of the results, and um, you're looking at these two-dimensional plots, which are kind of similar to what you've seen in the first two talks. Um, they kind of, what you're looking at is actually a little bit different, but you have these same kind of axes of uh, variation, these principal component axes. Um, and uh, the black arrows are kind of the kind of observed patterns of variation. And this is for a comparison between Neanderthals and different populations of today's humans, um, and also between uh, a little more ancient kind of humans we call Upper Paleolithic, um, individuals from the Upper Paleolithic from Eurasia. And so that's what the black arrows are showing. But what the uh, red ellipses are showing are the expectations if everything was entirely due to genetic drift. And what you can see here is that the black arrows are actually within the red ellipses, which suggests that these, um, these patterns of variation we see in the, in the actual empirical data are consistent with this process of genetic drift. So this was an interesting result. It fits with some of the other analyses that um, my colleagues and I have done um, over the years. But one thing you might be asking is, well, maybe it's consistent with genetic drift, but do we actually have kind of the ability or the power to kind of detect deviations from this model of genetic drift? Could the data sort of look like it's consistent because we don't really have an ability to, to detect deviations from that? And so one way we, uh, we took to sort of address this is we did another comparison. And in this case, we're comparing us, Homo, Homo sapiens, um, to a number of different species of um, great apes. So we're comparing with uh, common chimpanzees, we're comparing with bonobos, and we're comparing with gorillas. And what you can see is that in the same analysis, the same kind of analysis, you can see that the situation is very different. So in this case, all of the, the black arrows, or most cases in, in the different projections, the black arrows are outside the red ellipses, which suggests that it's inconsistent with a divergence by, by genetic drift. So what this gives us confidence that we actually have an ability to detect deviations from this process of genetic drift. And so the situation that we see in HOMO within our own genus actually looks kind of different from the situation we see when we compare Homo sapiens to other uh, great apes. So the next misconception um, that I want to talk about is that the modern human skull appeared rapidly about 200,000 years ago in Africa. And the first uh, presentation by Professor Ublant talked about this um, some, and so I'm going to cover some of the same ground. So when we actually look at the fossil record, what we see is we don't see a kind of an abrupt appearance of this kind of modern anatomy, this anatomy that kind of links us, uh, these fossils with today's humans. We actually see kind of as old as maybe 300,000 years ago from, from Jebel Road, we see faces that look similar to today's humans, but the brain cases don't look very similar to today's humans. And then kind of more recently in time, we see um, kind of more of these features, like today's humans. Um, and so it seems like it's kind of this gradual and sort of lengthy process where you get this accumulation of these features through time. So it doesn't seem to be a very kind of abrupt or sort of punctuated appearance of modern human anatomy at 200,000 years ago. 
So a lot of this, what I'm talking about, is kind of a kind of a bigger sort of sweep of human evolution. So we're looking back kind of many hundreds of thousands of years and sort of tracing this very longer kind of period of the emergence of our lineage. But there's actually some events that happened actually quite recently in time, which I think were very important um, in, in sort of um, determining, you know, what the skull anatomy of today's humans looks like. And what I'm talking about is agriculture. So in the last 10,000 years, we have the emergence of agriculture. And sort of step back a minute and sort of think that, so before 10,000 years ago, every single human on the planet, all the foods that they were eating were coming from exclusively hunted or wild gathered resources. And then after 10,000 years ago, you have the emergence of agriculture in many different parts of the world, and agriculture spreads um, very widely. And basically today, almost everyone gets their food from kind of agriculture, so from domesticated animals and domesticated um, crops. And so there's this massive transition in our diet and our subsistence that's happened just within the last 10,000 years. So this is a very recent event, but it's kind of a a huge uh, shift in our life ways. And so for a number of years, um, researchers have kind of speculated and also collected data to suggest that this, this transition to agriculture actually had a pretty profound effect on our skulls. And so the basic idea was is you go from very kind of hard sort of foods to much kind of softer foods. And because of these softer foods, you had a much kind of lower, some mechanical loading of your jaws. And because of the lower mechanical loading of your jaws, you have these changes um, in the anatomy of the skull. And so this figure right here is kind of a kind of a reconstruction where you go from the black outline of a kind of a hunter-gatherer to the blue outline of an agriculturalist. And so this basic idea is that there's this big shift that happens with agriculture that explains some of the distinctiveness of the skulls of people living today. And so this has been tested, actually, um, on a number of uh, kind of uh, samples, but mostly at a regional scale. And so a number of years ago, a former graduate student of mine um, and uh, another colleague uh, wanted to test this at a much kind of larger scale, at a global scale. And so we collected samples of uh, skull anatomy, uh, documented skull anatomy at a global scale. Um, So we wanted to kind of really understand kind of the geographic distribution, but we collected our samples in a particular way. So within most geographic regions, we actually had a matched sample of a hunter-gatherer group and uh, with uh, an agriculturalist group. So, for example, in France, we have a Mesolithic sample, so Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, matched with a Neolithic sample, so Neolithic agriculturalists. And so this really gave us a a sample that really allowed us to really sort of think about how these shifts in diet would uh, would have affected the anatomy of the skull. So we collected these kind of anatomical landmarks that you've seen um, a lot, you know, earlier in my talk and also in the other talks. And actually, um, uh, you know, maybe a distinction to make is actually so far everything that I've been talking about hasn't, hasn't really technically been the skull. It's been technically about what we call the cranium, right? So anatomically, the skull is composed of the cranium and the mandible, the mandible being the lower jaw. Um, so I've mostly just been talking about the cranium. But in this study, we actually uh, are talking about both the cranium and the mandible. Um, and this is important because the lower jaw is really um, kind of implicated in these ideas about chewing and the mechanical demands of chewing. So let me walk you through a few results here. 
So the analysis that we did really allowed us to sort of figure out what are the different factors that contribute to the variation that we see in our samples, the variation in, in skull form that we see across different individuals. And what you're looking at on these graphs here, so the top is the cranium, the bottom is the mandible, and what you're looking at is that this distribution, so, so how far out it is, so um, the closer it is to you know, the 400 end of the x-axis, or the closer it is, uh, or closer into the 50 end of the axis, so that's further in. So if it's further out, closer to 400, it means that it's kind of a more important factor. If it's closer to the 50 side, it means that it's kind of a smaller uh, factor. And what it turns out actually is the most important sort of source of variation is actually individual level variation kind of within groups. And so this tells us any human group or any human population is there's actually a lot of different um, individual variation. So if you take a human group from anywhere in the world and you kind of look at their skull form, there's a lot of differences actually between different individuals just from within that group. So everyone's kind of an individual. Everyone sort of looks kind of different from everyone else. And this is kind of an important thing to kind of point out is actually when you look at most features of kind of anatomy or morphology, um, most of the differences are actually found within any human group. Um, and, if you, and when you look at the, uh, the genome, you actually mostly see the same picture. So most of the variation in humans is actually found within groups. So we found this too. But the next kind of most important uh, factor is uh, what we call kind of population history. Um, and so this is... Um, populations that are more closely related to each other, had a more kind of shared history, are going to look more similar in their skull anatomy than populations that had a more kind of distant um, shared, uh, or a shorter shared history, a more distant relationship. But then finally, um, there is an effect of diet. So this is kind of hard uh, versus uh, soft diets. Um, and so uh, diet, uh, although it's kind of the least important factor, um, it is a kind of a significant effect. And so it does seem to have, at a global scale, have actually shaped the anatomy of today's skulls. So what we can see is that these kind of different factors that are sort of overlaid on top of each other, um, and this combination is what allows us to understand the skull of today's humans. So just uh, to kind of look at a little bit of some of the details a tiny bit. So uh, for some of the factors that we saw that were some of the aspects of the skull that were related to diet were in the mandible, this lower jaw. But there's also um, parts of the cranium that we saw this. So what you're looking at here is, is points that are documenting the attachment site of one of the major kind of muscles involved in chewing. And what you can see is in yellow are the kind of hard diet individuals, and in purple are the softer diet individuals. And so you can see that this aspect is being, um, is being shifted by the shift in diet. Okay. So, kind of in summary, um, why do the skulls of today's humans look the way they do? So I think that many of the difference between today's humans and earlier homo may be due to this process of genetic drift. So these kind of chance changes that, you ha that happen in populations just because they're finite in size are probably explaining a lot of variation we see across kind of present-day human populations and their skulls, but also differences between Neanderthals and us and, Neander and, us and other uh, members of the genus Homo. But it's also important to, to remember, and this came out, um, I think, in, uh, in the first presentation, that human skulls didn't stop evolving 200,000 years ago. They continued to change um, by this process of genetic drift, but also in, res in response to kind of local um, environmental circumstances, uh, local conditions, uh, things like these shifts in diet that we had with agriculture. 
And so you can see that there is a bunch of different factors that are kind of laid on top of each other that really allow us to sort of understand why the skulls of today's humans look different from other members of the genus Homo. So with that, I'd like to thank uh, all of you for listening, and I would like to thank um, my uh, uh, collaborators and funding sources and curators who gave access to collections, um, and thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.